Welcome to the Seminole Wars. In this podcast, we explore how the Seminole Wars came to be, how they were fought, and how they still resonate some two centuries later. I am your host, Patrick Swan, and our show is a production of the Seminole Wars Foundation, found online at www.seminolewars.us. We are recording today from the homestead of the Foundation in Bushnell, Florida. Thank you for listening. Hello and welcome. Some would find it odd, but once the Seminole did agree to removal, they were in compliance with the treaty, and so all the Seminole who removed to Oklahoma were considered friendly to the U.S. government. The late unpleasantness of removal all forgotten by the Army and U.S. government, that is. Autodidact and all things Seminole Wars expert Jesse Marshall returns. Jesse Marshall, welcome to the Seminole Wars. Glad to join you. Throughout the entire rotten seven years, the Army never moved from its position, which was the government's position. The Army had to abide. Anyone that did not actively surrender and remove to the West was in violation of the treaties between the United States and the Seminole Nation and was essentially an outlaw in that capacity. At times, the Seminole were as intransigent as the U.S. Army when it came to removal, except that in their case, it was uncompromising defiance that motivated them. And a reminder of what happened to Charlie Amathla when he took the money to run. Osceola dispatched him with alacrity for doing so. Sam Jones, essentially the national leader after Micanopy had been captured and sent west, late 37, early 38. Sam Jones and the prophet Atoki Flacco were very clear that anyone that wanted to defect and surrender would not be allowed to do so. And Sprague gives occasion from informants that occasionally when Seminoles from the Everglades would reach Tampa Bay, for example, they would speak of other Seminoles who had attempted to fly from the Everglades to the army and were apprehended and killed, not just men, but whole families. The Seminole had serious reservations about removal, and some would never remove at all, like Sam Jones. How much did the army take that into account? You could read that throughout the war period, the debates between the military commanders and the civil authorities over how to finish the situation, but there's never an allowance to allow the Seminoles to say in the conclusion of this conflict. As far as the federal government was concerned, they had signed away that right with the removal treaties to Payne's Landing and Fort Gibson. You could read the Journal of Ellis Hughes in South Florida. He talks about Sam Jones coming to the garrison, and he draws a picture of him and talks with him about the war. That was during a period of negotiation. As long as they didn't come in and surrender, like Sam Jones and the, the Creek Prophet, Atoki Tlaco, and their handful, the conflict would just continue inevitably, because as long as they were not being consulted, and when Sam Jones was consulted, he said, give us a small parcel, just give us a little bit of land, we don't need much, because there's not many people left. And the government says, no, no. Had the U.S. government been more willing to compromise, the Seminole could have taken the south part of the peninsula, and the war would be over. To me, and the way Hitchcock puts it, they were not interested in carrying on the war to any greater extent than it already had gone. And they were willing to make peace, particularly by offering, again, a significant land session of their Florida reservation. If you look at the interaction between the United States and the Indian tribes, particularly in the southeast, from the American Revolution through the 1830s, you'll see that it's just an ongoing series of negotiations where the, particularly the Creek were always seeding land. Anytime there was an eruption between the Creeks and the United States or Americans generally, that would usually result 
in a land session to satisfy both parties a treaty with seed land. So the Seminoles evidently were seeking the same sort of concession at Camp Izzard by what is recorded from Hitchcock. Also, there's a lot of details about that recorded in the Court of Inquiry. There was a court-martial for General Gaines and General Scott after their campaigns in 1836. And there are some questions given by the Court of Inquiry to many of the officers present at Camp Izzard about the conduct of that parlay. And there are details about the parlay found in that court-martial that aren't found elsewhere. But again, the U.S. officers were not in a position to negotiate with the Seminole because so far, since the Senate had ratified the removal treaties of Payne's Creek and Fort Gibson, there was no longer any negotiation. The Seminole were supposed to, to abide by their end of those treaties as ratified by the Senate of the United States. And given the force of law at that point, the Seminoles had to remove so far as the United States was concerned, in order for the United States to live up to their end of that treaty. Although we recognize the Army was uncompromising in its demands that the Seminole remove to Oklahoma, it's not as if the Army didn't try to incentivize the removal for the Seminole to help them make that decision. 4041, General W.K. Armistead took command, and he initiated, not necessarily his idea, but he initiated the mode of offering cash payments to Seminole leaders that surrendered. And that evidently bore fruit. The national papers produced lists of perhaps two dozen Seminole sub-chiefs and chiefs that surrendered and gives the total of their cash payout for surrendering and immigrating. General Armistead paid Seminole Miccosukee leaders to come in and surrender. And that evidently worked. Newspaper prints published lists of a, a dozen or more Seminole chiefs and sub-chiefs that surrendered with their bands and gave a list of the cash payments that were provided them for surrendering and immigrating. Some of the newspaper prints were saying, if we knew that all we had to do was pay cash payouts to them to surrender and move west, why didn't we do that three years ago? <laughs> But of course, that didn't appeal to all of the Seminoles. Right. Sam Jones was never going to surrender for anything, and he never did. Before the war began, Charlie Amathla took the money and agreed to removal, but it didn't work out so well for him. That's right. And he didn't get to spend that money before Osceola shot him, or Osceola's credited with shooting him. I don't know if he actually did it. And Osceola himself did not surrender, but was captured under a white flag of truce when he was coming in to enter negotiations. His capture did not end the war. Jesse, the army and the government would never say that removal was a punishment, but when you consider the options before the army when they captured Seminole, removal was the only option in the government's eyes. And if they agreed to remove, there's no more issue. The government just decided not to hold the Seminoles accountable for resisting in the first place, with the exception that they still had to be removed when captured or detained or they turned themselves in. As soon as the Seminole were removed from Florida, they were no longer hostile. They were now cooperating with the treaties of Payne's Landing and Fort Gibson's. Another factor to consider is kin ties factored into individual Seminole tribes' decision to remove or not. You also have the strength of their kin in that you have clans within the bands you know, the Wind Clan and the Bear Clan, etc. From what I've read, even out west, the Seminoles continued in the function in that clan and town system. And some of the towns may have combined over time, but they evidently, the clans still exist, the clan distinctions, and many of these town distinctions exist. What united all the disparate tribes of the Seminole people was resistance to removal. Once they removed, did they stay united when they reached Oklahoma? 
Among the Seminole in the Indian Territory, they remained distinct in different groups for years. The censuses of the Seminoles in the Indian Territory showed that the bands of Calcuche and Alligator remained in one district, and Black Dirt's people were far out on another side of the reservation, and Micanopy and this band here and there. They were not all monolithic. Some tribes fiercely resisted removal. Some resisted removal, but didn't antagonize the U.S. soldiers who were trying to remove them. Some resisted removal, but just tried to do it by staying away. And then some just gave in to removal and, and were shipped off to Oklahoma. There was about 500 Seminole, but many of them were Creeks, who alighted to Tampa Bay before the war really heated up after Charlie Motla's death at the hands of Osceola, supposedly. And among them was Olata Matla, uh, yellow hair and black dirt, and about 500 people. There's some documents where the acting Indian agent Page, an officer of the Army, after Thompson's death, he submitted for them to the War Department a request that they be considered the Seminole tribe, that because they were willing to abide by the treaty, they asked that they alone be allowed the annuities that were due to the whole tribe once they settled in the West. In other words, that would have been a real power shift, as it were. It would have made Holata Amathla the head chief of the nation. But I don't see that the United States acted on that. They did remove them to the West, and Holata Amathla died before they even reached the Western Reservation. And I think from my reading sometime past that Black Dirt became the essential head of that group of Seminole out West that were sort of the pioneers of the tribe there in the Western Reservations. The government then providing rations for the Seminole as they arrived in the Western Territory. And evidently, for quite a while, Micanopy and a lot of the Seminoles hung around Fort Gibson. They didn't want to move to the Canadian River where their reservation was. They liked it around Fort Gibson, which was a hub of trade and supplies. So we find these curious references to interactions like Seminoles camp near Fort Pike, Louisiana on their way west, raising money for a wedding party by walking down the, the neighborhood and dancing in front of the storefront and people giving the money to buy some goods for the new bride, cooking utensils or clothing, and the people there in Louisiana that were present giving them some money. I could imagine some little old lady saying, aren't those Seminoles just adorable? I'm glad those bloodthirsty savages have put down their arms and decided not to massacre us anymore. The witness that recorded it says probably gave them the money more to get them to go away because after a few minutes of their dancing, it's amusing and interesting, but let's give them a dollar and they'll go down to the next storefront. <laughs> Once removed, what can we say about the Seminole in Oklahoma? Read some books like The Seminole by Mick Reynolds and any books on the Seminole's removal to the West from the beginning of their immigration to the Western Territory through the Civil War period. What reading about that shows is that as soon as the Seminole were landed in their western reservation, they were then embroiled in a completely different political situation than they had in Florida. They now, by and large, relied upon their friendship with the army in contradistinction to the other tribes that were removing into the Indian Territory. The Creeks, particularly Cherokee and others, were essentially their neighbors. They may not be immediate neighbors, but they had tribal lands assigned 
assigned to them. And there were many cases where different groups of different tribes had settled on the other tribe's land, contrary to the treaties. And so the army had a very difficult situation to keep that stuff on a, on a level. Now, that was national level politics for the Seminoles, but they also had within themselves the several bands of Seminoles out west didn't necessarily cooperate with each other. I think it's pretty obvious that when some of the Seminole chiefs that were out west came back to Florida to convince others to join them out west, they considered it to their advantage because it would add to their numbers in the west, add to their numbers against other Seminole bands that may not be cooperating, and also adding to their numbers nationally against the Creeks and the neighboring Cherokee, etc., there were even some Seminole that chose to live among the Cherokee, and Cherokee didn't like that. They're like, well, they're not Cherokee. Why are they on our land? Well, they don't want to stay with the other Seminoles. Well, that's not our problem. Take that external politics from Florida. It's external to what we generally study in Florida. What do we say? Politics makes strange bedfellows? One would never think that Alligator would return to Florida unless it was to stay. And yet he agreed to go back to Florida, even though he knew he would be removed again. What's the story there? As soon as Alligator got out west, he's a smart leader, and he, he obviously recognized that it was to his advantage to get as many of the people that were allied with him or in Florida to get them to surrender and come out west where they'd be his allies in the west. It was the same with Micanopi and Kawakuchi and others. They had their own problems out west that had to be dealt with, and if they had a significant number of their people were still in Florida, it did them no good. So, again, the Army wanted to make use of that situation, and it also so the internal politics, I mentioned that in 1836, Holada Matla had offered the, the government to recognize his band of several hundred, maybe 500 people, recognize them as the true Seminoles, give us the annuities, give us the benefits to distribute as we see fit. That would have rendered the other chieftains subservient to him. Again, he died before they got out west, and the government did not act in that capacity. They still recognized Micanopi as the head chief, even out west, until his death. Then he was replaced. So the different bands had to interact in some measure with Micanopi and the, the national government. But again, they were evidently hard feeling. No individual band was strong enough to take control. But then an unexpected opportunity presented itself from a very unlikely source, the U.S. Army. The mission? Come back to Florida and persuade the remaining Seminoles to join you in Oklahoma. Needing allies for his band, among other Seminole, and for the Seminole among the other tribes in Oklahoma, Alligator readily accepted the post. Others followed. Alligator was brought back to negotiate particularly. Kawakuchi, or Wildcat, was brought back. Some of them were employed as army scouts and guides. Polatucci, who was a leader among the Seminole proper. John Horse, Sampson Forrester, etc. These gentlemen were all present with Colonel Worth's detachment in the final battle of the war, essentially what we'd call a battle, at Palaklaka Hammock in April of 1840. How did Worth finesse a battle? not to mention a decisive battle, from a Seminole that did not want to give battle. Once the Seminoles' crops were destroyed and they reached a point of desperation, Colonel Worth did get a battle. At the, it was the final battle of the war at Palaklakaha Hammock on April of 1842. Brigade-sized force of regulars under Worth, along with some friendly Seminoles and Black Seminole scouts, engaged and attacked the fortified hideout of Halak Tustanugi and his Mikasuki warriors near Palaklakaha and drove them from their position with the loss of one dragoon killed and several others wounded. Bragg, the author of the Florida War History 
1848, was present and gives a great description of the preparations for combat by this small grouping of somewhat legendary Seminole, black Seminole leaders going into battle against Halek Tustanugi in his last stand, as it were, giving their war cries and essentially leading the charge. Halek's band was routed from their positions, which were partly fortified with felled trees with swampy ground in front. The U.S. troops by then, by Sprague's description, had become expert in wilderness and skirmish tactics, and so casualties were very few. The men didn't bunch up and provide a good target. So from my recollection, only one U.S. soldier was killed, Private Wandel of Company K, 2nd Dragoons, who was buried on the ground. There were several wounded, and they killed and several of Halleck's band, whose bodies were left on the ground which was considered odd and considered an evidence of a victory because the Seminoles generally went out of their way to retrieve the bodies of their dead, carry off their battle casualties. So, what became of Alligator and his band? For this podcast, I'll have to leave you with the immortal words of Laurence Olivier playing Zeus in Jason and the Argonauts. I paraphrase, but for Alligator, there are other adventures. I have not yet finished with Alligator. Let us continue the game another day. And the story of Alligator in Oklahoma, and then off into Texas and elsewhere, is a story for another day and another episode. Jesse Marshall, thanks for joining us once again for The Seminole Wars. Yes, it's been a pleasure. If you enjoyed this show, please take a moment to like us on Facebook at Seminole Wars Foundation. Leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast provider. Your reviews and comments help new listeners discover us and help us keep this show going. Visit our website at www.seminowars.us for blogs, articles, news, books, events, membership information, and how to subscribe to this podcast. We'll be back soon with a new episode of the Seminole Wars Podcast. The Seminole Wars Foundation is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to preservation, education, and publication of Seminole Wars history throughout the state of Florida. This podcast is copyrighted. The Seminole Wars Foundation 2021. All rights reserved. Front bumper music The Devil's Garden, Roastem, provided by kind permission of Reedy Youngman. Back bumper music Second Seminole Win by Jed Merrim and Ricky Pittman, courtesy of Ricky Pittman. All rights reserved.